Thank you, Tim. Thank you, praise team. What a wonderful time of worship we've had this morning, and what reason we have for blessed assurance, and what a timely song as we turn in our copy of God's Word. If you would, go ahead and uh, grab God's Word. Turn with me to the book of First John. We're continuing our uh, study through the book of First John. We're going to make it uh, eventually through the entirety of it and talking about knowing Jesus and the joy of knowing Jesus. And we've seen a lot already and are certainly going to see uh, more today. And uh, much of what we're going to be talking about today has to do with assurance and that God has provided for us assurance that we all know that we need. Uh, we like a sure thing. We like to know that we are confident and resting assured in what has been accomplished and what is going on. Uh, I need no other illustration than maybe one I could point out from a football game uh, just a few days ago. Uh, there was great assurance come by the end of, the, uh, end of that football game, <laughs> who is the better team? And we're certainly delighted with the result that we had. But how much more so can we have assurance that rests with us all the time? The assurance of knowing Jesus, of the hope that's found in Him, of what He provides for us in the sense of giving us the assurance of hope in the ongoing work that He is doing and His finished work that He has accomplished. But also the assurance of our faith and that we enjoy the assurance of knowing that our faith is genuine when we see obedience at work in our hearts and lives. So grab your copy of God's Word, read with me in 1 John, starting in chapter 2, verse 1, and we're going to read down through verse 6 together. Read with me if you will. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says this, "'My little, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as the echo of the song, Blessed Assurance, is still ringing in our ears. Such precious words that we have sung through many circumstances in our lives, and Father, where we have found great assurance when we had none in this world, we had it all in You. Father, remind us of that now. And Father, remind us of that as we take a look into this section and this portion of Your Word. And Father, that not only would we know assurance in Jesus, but Father, that we would enjoy it. That we would enjoy the full benefit of what You have provided for us in Christ. And Lord, that You would stir our hearts anew and afresh to walk with You in faithfulness. Father, we pray and ask for Your Spirit to be at work in our hearts and lives in ways that we never even imagined when we walked in here today. And Lord, we look forward to all the ways in which we will, together, enjoy assurance in Jesus. Father, help us now as we study Your Word. And Lord, we ask it all in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 
So as we come into this section of God's Word, and we remember where we've been in 1 John, we've talked a little bit already about who Jesus is and really the unveiling and the grand wonder of who He is, talking about the Word of life and the wonder of what it means to know Him as such. And we talked last week about living in the light of God and the ways in which that is meant to be displayed in our own lives individually. And so we come to this little section here in 1 John chapter 2 where he, he takes a little bit of a turn and sort of dials in a little further, and it starts off with, my little children. Now we read that at first, and maybe you're sitting here and you're like, is that condescending, right? Is he talking down to these people here? And he's not. By the time this was written, the Apostle John, both in terms, I mean, you can think in terms of his established authority, you can think in terms of his uh, spiritual maturity, and you can think in terms of his age as well. He could speak this way to brothers and sisters in Christ. He's helping them and encouraging them along the way. It's as though with like endearing affection, he's saying, loved ones. One of the most precious things about reading 1 John and studying 1 John is you find these little family markers all along the way. These little endearing phrases and endearing words, beloved and loved ones and, you know, these ways in which my little children and these ways in which we are reminded that as we think and function as a church, we're not just a disconnected bag of parts. We're a family united together in Christ. And that we're reminded of that even from this little phrase here. And then we are given such specific intention as to what he's getting at here. He says, look, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. You've been in those conversations before where it feels like somebody is just taking the longest detour ever to try to get to the point that they're trying to make. And maybe you're trying to give them little physical clues, like, you know, you start to look around a little bit, you you know, you're just trying to help encourage things along a little. John does not have that problem. He's getting straight to the point here. Here's what I'm getting at. I'm going to give it to you straight, my little children. I'm writing these things to to you so that you may not sin. That knowing Jesus is meant to impact our lives and to transform our desires, transform our actions, transform our aims. I'm writing so that you would not sin in the sense of your own unbelief or the ways in which you think or the ways in which you, you don't love one another in time. Writing to you so that you would not sin because it disrupts your fellowship with one another. It disrupts your fellowship with the Lord God himself. It's like he's appealing to them. I'm writing to you that you would enjoy fellowshipping with Christ and in so doing fellowshipping with the body of Christ as well. That we would enjoy what we have in Jesus. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But see, when we read that, especially within the context of what we read last week, we recognize immediately we have a problem. Because you can just back up one verse and you can read in 1 John chapter 1, verse 10, it says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. He's saying, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So I don't want you to continue on in this pattern of sin, but the reality is we also have the problem of the, of the fact we have all already sinned. We all sin on a regular basis. We've got that as an existing issue in our own lives. 
And we need assurance of hope. And we realize right quickly from the beginning of verse 1 right here, that assurance is not going to be found in ourselves. We're not playing word games here like often happens where it's like, well, if you just think better thoughts of yourself, everything's going to be okay. That's not what he's getting at here. He's not trying to lead people along in some sort of weird delusion if you can just convince yourself that you can do what you know that you can't. We need assurance of hope. And it doesn't come from ourselves. But as always, God provides a better answer. Because just as soon as he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, he says this, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. If anyone does sin, isn't this a nice way of putting that? Because the fact is, he could have just as easily said, when you do sin, right? When you have those moments where you act on your own pride. When you have those moments where you're not expressing the love of Christ to your family. When you have those moments of doubt and distrust and unrest and covetousness. It's like he's looking at the church family saying, if you sin, when you sin, there's still hope that you can take confidence and find assurance in Jesus Christ. And see, he starts off here by pointing us to enjoying the assurance of hope in the ongoing work of Jesus. See, a lot of times when we talk about what Jesus is doing, we got to think about where he is and what he's doing right now. And this is exactly what we have right here. It says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He says, we. Now, who is that? We who? The church. That's exactly right. We who know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, we who know Him personally, who have turned away from our sin and trusted in Him, who believe that He died on the cross for our sin and rose from the dead, we have an advocate with the Father. We've enjoyed the wonder of 1 John 1, 9 for the first time and in an enduring reality where we confess our sins and we recognize He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We who know we need Jesus and have cast our entirety of our lives upon him for his mercy and have enjoyed every bit of it. We have an advocate with the Father. Now the word advocate here is the same word from the same Greek word from which you get the word paraclete. It's a word that's often used of the Holy Spirit, right? In John chapter 14 and John chapter 16, you find that very thing. The word is used and translated in a whole bunch of different ways. An advocate, you could talk about our intercessor, our mediator, our counselor, our comforter. It does have some legal connotations, right? In the sense of a counsel for the defense. But see, it, we need to see that this is much more personal than just a legal advocate. Jesus is not some sort of disconnected public defender. He is our personal Savior. It's as though He, as a friend, is defending us. So that when our sin testifies against us that you failed, you did it again, you're no good, Jesus defends us with what He's done, with who He is, and how He has accomplished it. 
So that we can say when our sin condemns us and we get halfway through the week and we say, I can't believe I'm going through this. I can't believe I did that. Or you're thinking back and you're haunted by the things of the past and you hear the advocate standing before the Father saying, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have an advocate before the Father. He's with the Father. Jesus is the one who is there when we hit the bottom. He defends us. When we cry out, I need help. There he is. He's our advocate. Why should we be so confident in him? What makes, us, what makes him so much better than ourselves? Why should we rest all of our assurance of hope in him? Well, look at who he is. It's like his resume is laid out in front of us. All of a sudden, we start to look and we say, well, what is his name? What is his title? What has he done? And where is he? Our advocate is with the Father. Don't let the weird ideas and the weird cartoonish depictions of heaven warp your idea of what Jesus is doing right now. Jesus is not floating around on a, cl- a cloud somewhere eating Krispy Kreme donuts, wake, looking for something to do. He is not doing that. He is working. The ongoing work of Christ, He's advocating for us. He's with the Father, which even to say that assumes the reality of what Jesus has done. He died on the cross for our sin. He rose from the dead. The Apostle John interacted with Jesus while he was on the cross, saw him after the resurrection, and was present in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus ascended to the Father. He witnessed all of this. And the ongoing work of Jesus gives us assurance because our advocate is there. It's not as though we're waiting for him to show up. It's not as though we're waiting for his time to come where he has it. He's always there. He's eternally present so that we can go boldly before the throne of grace and find mercy in our time of need because he's with the Father. And look at his qualifications. Look at his name. His name is Jesus. He's our Savior. His name means Yahweh is salvation. He's the Son of God himself. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the promised one. He's the fulfillment of all the promises in the Old Testament and the fulfillment of all the anointed roles of the Old Testament in prophet, priest, and king. And he is Jesus Christ, the righteous. He himself is the full expression of God's moral splendor. That he is our advocate never sinned, lived in absolute perfection, a tested perfection where he was tempted to fail in every way in which we are and yet he never did so that he could not only die on the cross as our substitute, save us from our sin, cover us in his righteousness and then go stand before the Father and say, they're mine. They they stand covered by me. That's our advocate. Look at who he is. Look at what assurance we have in him. Look what reason we have to enjoy the assurance we have in him. Because he's qualified. We like it when we have qualified people doing work for us, don't we? You're hiring somebody at the office, like, are you qualified to do the work? 
You invite somebody into your house to do something? It's like, are you qualified to do the work? Somebody working on your car? What about your hope? Is he qualified to do the work? More than any of us could ever be. Look, look and see the picture. That when our sin testifies against us, Jesus defends us by his righteousness. And while Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is advocating before the Father in heaven, the first person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is applying the work of advocation to us here on earth. Isn't that amazing? Enjoy the assurance of hope and the ongoing work of Jesus. You don't need to Google up an advocate to find one. You don't need to call the personal injury attorney whose ad you saw when you were watching reruns of Judge Judy sometime. We have an advocate who's with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. Enjoy His ongoing work and never forget that not only is He working, but He has also finished work. And if you're not a believer here this morning, here's where you need to start. Verse 2, it says, He, Jesus Christ the righteous, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He is the propitiation for our sins. Now that's a very heavy theological word that really means He endured the full outpouring of the wrath of God against our sin. And the sin of all who would repent and believe. He endured it for you. Our sin demands punishment. And in substituting Himself, in substitutionary atonement, Jesus died in our place. Now when we think of the cross, and we need to think of this often, when we think of the cross, the physical brutality of the cross was horrendous. It was awful. It was specifically designed to be awful. But the deeper reality of what was going on was the outpouring of the wrath of God against our sin. The full outpouring against all of our lust and pride and hate and idolatry. So that when we quote Romans 5.8, where we say God demonstrated His own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What we are saying is that when Jesus propitiated for us, that was an expression of God's love for you. So that when we hear the declaration, it is finished from the cross. Jesus' propitiatory work, Jesus enduring the full outpouring of the wrath of God, only had to be done one time. It really is finished. Everything necessary for your salvation has already been done. He has done it. Just cry out for mercy. Cry out for grace. Stop trying to rest your hope in yourself. Rest all of your hope in the finished work of Christ. That no sin is outside of His reach. His grace is sufficient to save and rescue and redeem. 
See, so many people are living their lives like you're stuck on this road, and there's no exit, and there's no off-ramp. You're just stuck, and you just have to keep going. It's like, oh, well, uh, well, it is what it is. I just can't get out of here. No, 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 no. He is the exit. He is the rescue. Trust him in his finished work. He is calling you to himself. He has already done it. Unless you think anyone anywhere is outside of his reach, notice what he says here. He says he's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That does not mean everybody is saved. That does not mean everybody is going to be saved. But that does mean that everyone who comes to know Jesus as Savior and Lord is saved and will be saved. That everyone who believes in him shall not perish, but will have everlasting life. No matter your background, no matter your culture, no matter what your language is, no matter how locked into the past you may be, man, no matter how deep the sort of genetic struggles and those things that you sort of hang on to, like, it's just part of who I am. No, it's not. No matter what your upbringing may have been, listen, Jesus saves There is hope in him, and we're meant to enjoy it. The cross is still sufficient. The one-time sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins is all that was necessary. It's more than sufficient. Are you trusting in him now? Are you enjoying what he has done and what he is doing? Enjoy the assurance of hope in the finished work of Christ. So many people living lives where it just feels like you're grasping for hope and it's like one thing after another. Well, I'll just get this thing and you're sort of hanging on to it. You say, I'm going to reach out and I'm going to grab it and it slips through your fingers. And you're like, oh, well. I'm going to reach out over here. I'm going to grab it and it slips through your fingers. And you're like, oh, well. Look to Jesus and trust in him. There is hope nowhere else. But when you find hope in him, you aren't looking anywhere else. Enjoy the assurance of hope in the ongoing and in the finished work of Jesus. And see that God has provided a way for us to know the assurance of our faith. Because he goes on to say in verse 3, he says, And by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, we want to know that we've got the real thing. That's why many of you, whenever you go to a restaurant, you still do it. Even though Coke is everywhere now, you still do it. You're like, you got Coke or Pepsi? Because I don't want Pepsi. Right? Because you know whenever that thing shows up and you take a sip, you're like, what is that? Get it out of here. That's why many of us, when we go, you know, you're looking for somewhere to eat. It's like, well, I want a chicken sandwich. Well, there's only really only one place that sells one of those. You want the real thing. We like a test of authenticity. We want to know that what we have as we inspect it is genuine. What about your faith? By this, we know that we've come to know him. And we lean in, like, what's he about to say? If we keep his commandments, we're like, obey him? 
Yep. Now, this is not obedience like grin and bear it kind of obedience. Remember how, what Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's an expression of love to him, that you actually trust him. It's an indication that you're genuinely trusting him because you cannot say you trust someone if you refuse to do what they say. If a doctor prescribes medicine for you and you refuse to take it, that means you don't trust your doctor. If your parents tell you to do something and you don't do it, that means you don't trust your parents. See, obedience does not save us. Jesus saves us. But obedience is evidence of genuine faith that you are actually trusting in him. And notice this is not a call to some sort of you know, perfectionism or that we're ever going to attain that in any way, shape, or form. Because you remember the first command of Jesus in his ministry? You remember what it was? Repent and believe the gospel. That means he knew we were going to fail a whole bunch of times. And so part of obeying his commandments is constantly coming back in repentance and trusting in the fact that we, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a pattern of repentance that's lived out constantly. doesn't mean you're perfect, but when you sin, you come out, come back to the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me. And there's other things. Jesus said a whole bunch of things. How to, I mean, we can talk about commands all day long. Forgive one another. Love one another. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who mistreat you. We hear all those things. We're thinking, oh, wow. By this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Does your life display obedience to him? Does your life display that you know that he knows better than you? It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to live it. And see, some people are trying to follow Christ and just trying to do their own thing along the way and wondering all along the way why you struggle so often with the assurance of your faith. Listen, by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. He goes on, verse 4, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. This is pretty stern, isn't it? Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Because the fact of the matter is, it's easy to pick up facts along the way, to just sort of learn the answers to the test, to say the right things. But God is calling us to more than just saying the right things. Do you trust Him? Is there evidence of knowing Him for who He is? In your life, who has the final say? Who do you assume is always right? I mean, we can joke about this in marriage all day long, right? When you come down to it, it's like, who do you assume is always right? Maybe you don't want to answer that right now. But in your relationship with Jesus, who do you assume is always right? Is that on display in your life? 
If you say that you know him and you do not obey him, he says, you're a liar. The truth is not in you. It's like with kind, tender, but straightforward seriousness. God is leading us to look and see for vital signs of our faith. When a first responder shows up, they come looking for vital signs. Come looking for a pulse. Make sure somebody's breathing. Make sure there's some evidence of life. It's not that the activity itself is living, but it is evidence that life is there. And maybe you need to sit here this morning and take your spiritual pulse. Because what Christ has called us to is not some sort of self-centered insurance policy. But to a life of enjoying knowing Him. And it's as though John has reached the age in this moment where the brevity of life heightens the clarity of his mouth. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But... Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. Whoever keeps his word in the sense, I mean, the word itself is drawn from the whole idea of guarding it, that there's this sense of attention being paid to it and observance of it, that you have it and then you do it. We know what that's like. If you've been to the grocery store with a list, right? You keep the list in your pocket, right? You don't want to lose that thing. Maybe you keep it on your phone because you're smarter than everybody else. But if you go out of there with everything that's not on the list and everything that's on the list, you didn't get any of it. Did you keep the list? No. You didn't do any of it. You think about it in a contract. Terms of a contract. Are you keeping it? Are you keeping the terms? It's very obvious if you do and if you don't. He says, look. Whoever keeps his word, whoever observes it and walks in it as an expression of love for the God who sent his son to die on the cross for your sin and rise from the dead, there's forgiveness and life in his name. There's eternal hope in Christ and that our lives are lived as an expression of love and thankfulness to him in our obedience. He says, when you live that way, truly the love of God is perfected. Not that God's love for you needs perfection. It's already perfect. But you need to know that you love him. You need that assurance. I need that assurance. And that assurance is found in obedience to Christ. That's what we're being called to right here. To enjoy him in the assurance that he provides. Looking, I mean, and maybe you're, you're thinking about your, your daily walk with Christ. Maybe you're reading your Bible or you're, you're, and all of a sudden God is just at work and you're thinking, well, how can I express my love for Jesus? Obey him. Pray. Love your wife like Christ loves the church. Reconcile with one another. Forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. Be merciful. Treasure the truth. Worship Him in spirit and truth. Love one another. 
See, this is like a rescue call from this notion that we, so many people are just sort of lost and stagnant in this endless array of self-analysis. Like standing in front of the mirror and be like, well, that's wrong, and that's wrong, and that's wrong, and that doesn't look right, and that doesn't look right, and that doesn't look right, and this doesn't feel right. And like the more you stand there, the worse it gets, right? The more you look, you're like, oh, man, that's weird looking. I never noticed that before. What's it lead to? Just more self-analysis. That's where a lot of people are. We need to turn away from the mirror, walk out the door, and go obey Jesus. And when you do that, you're going to have the assurance of genuine faith just flowing through your life. Taking God at his word, trusting and obeying and walking in that. And listen to what he says. "By By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. By this we know we are in him, that we are abiding in him. And you can just feel the language being drawn from John chapter 15. Abiding in Jesus. Jesus is the vine. I am the vine. You are the branches. The whole notion of just resting and remaining and enjoying in him and drawing all sense of nourishment from him and all sense of hope from him. He says that you may know that you are in him. You make the claim that you abide in him. You ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That if you abide anywhere, there's going to be clear evidence of it. If you abide in a big old pile of dirt, you're going to be filthy. Right? If you abide in a pool, you're going to get wet, and you're going to get those weird skin wrinkles on your hands. If you abide in a Waffle House... You're going to smell like you're scattered, smothered, covered, chunked, and topped. It is what it is. If you abide in Jesus, there's evidence. There's life at work in you. The aroma of Christ is with you. You, you feel His grace at work within you. You know He's at work. And when you, you have the conviction of your sin, and you, you know Him for who He is, you say, Lord, I cry out to You, and I rest sure in Your grace and mercy, because You're gracious even when I'm not. You'll forgive me even when I can't forgive myself. And you know what? He does. You say, Lord, I'm going to follow You. I'm going to do what You say. I'm going to trust that you know what you're doing. I'm going to trust that you know better than me what to do with my life, that your word is eternally relevant and eternally applicable in my own life. So I'm going to love the truth, and I'm going to seek to fellowship with the Father, and I'm going to care for those around me, and I'm going to get involved in mercy. I'm going to challenge hypocrisy. I'm going to embrace humility and patience and kindness and joy and peace and self-control. You remember how Jesus was within the Gospels. It's as though with tears in his eyes, John can close his eyes and remember how Jesus was with the woman at the well. How Jesus was with the demoniac. When everybody was like, lock that guy away and throw him on the other side of nowhere where nobody can get to him. And Jesus went to go get him. When people are crying out for help and they're saying, you got to be quiet, Jesus has somewhere to be. And Jesus walks right over to those people.
If you abide in him, you ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And the more you know him and the more you interact with him, the more you'll be like him. That's how it is with anybody, isn't it? The more you know him, the more you interact with him, the more you'll be like him. Are we walking like he walked? Is it evident in our values and in our actions? The ways in which our lives are shaped and lived and aimed and pointed. Do you have the assurance that your faith is genuine? And maybe you just need to walk in obedience. Maybe you've been a Christian for years and you've never been baptized. That's a step to take. Maybe you've been a believer for years and you've never said anyone to, anything about it to anyone around you. Maybe you need to just plug your life into God's Word and put the things away for a little while and just rest and enjoy what He says concerning Himself. Whoever you are and however you are, we all need assurance. We all need these constant reminders. We all need Him. This world is fleeting and time is short. And there is hope and life and forgiveness in no one other than Jesus Christ Himself. Who lived in perfect righteousness, was tempted in every way as you are, was without sin, went to the cross, died there for you. That for all your sin where you were storing up wrath for the day of judgment. All your pride and all your arrogance. All your lust. All your hate. All your fear. All your doubt. All your mistrust. All your self-centeredness. All that storing up wrath for the day of judgment. When Jesus went to the cross. He endured the full outpouring of the wrath of God against your sin. That when you turn away from your sin and you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you rest assured that you are saved because of Him and His finished work. And that as He lives and as He is at work in heaven, whenever the whispers around us are constantly assailing us, He is there as our advocate, declaring His own righteousness over our own unrighteous lives. Do you have that kind of hope in Christ? Start with trusting Him for the first time today. And maybe you're here this morning and you need to just walk in obedience with Him. What's the next step for you? Trust the Spirit. Take one of His specific commands that we have in Scripture. What are you going to do next? Because it's time to stop doing nothing. And start living and enjoying Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And God, we thank you for Jesus. Heavenly Father, forgive us for putting up such a veneer of our own self-assurance. Forgive us for being so proud to think that we can make this up as we go along. 
Lord, we pray that in this moment now, you would dislodge any sense of assurance in anyone other than Jesus. Father, that we would cast all of our hope on him. He's the only one who can hold us, who can carry us, who can be our advocate, who can be our Savior. And Father, we pray for the person today who is listening to the sound of my voice, if they have never trusted in Jesus as Savior and Lord, that today they would cry out and say, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. That they would turn away from their sin and trust in Jesus, crucified and resurrected for them. Lord, that they would know the assurance of hope in the finished work of Christ. Father, remind us to enjoy the fact that Jesus is not doing nothing right now. That even as we come before you and asking boldly for you to save and redeem and reconcile and to work in our own hearts and lives, we know that we can do so solely on the basis of the fact that Jesus is our advocate. Father, we pray that in this moment now, you would again stir the hearts and lives of those who profess to believe you, to walk in obedience to Christ, and to enjoy the assurance of faith. Lord, you know what we need this morning. Lead us as we respond to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.